Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. Just a really quick note to let you all know that the awesome book Chess Structures by recent guest of the show, GM Mauricio Flores, is now available on Chessable. And they beefed it up with 600 new trainable variations from the 140 model games in the book. And for a limited time, it's $10 off the regular price. So if you haven't bought this book already, I promise you, you will not regret it. So go to chessable.com and go get it. All right, on to the show. Enjoy, everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. What is happening, everyone? Welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another great Grandmaster guest this week. He is joining us from his native North Macedonia, where the European Championship is ongoing, and he is taking a break here on his rest day to enlighten us. He is an author of some books for Chessable, including most recently The Nidorf Sicilian Simplified. He's also got a popular blog, uh, one of my favorite Grandmaster bloggers, it is safe to say. And he was just named the president of the Association of Chess Professionals. So, GM Alex uh, Cholovich, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we started talking a minute ago before we uh, started recording the interview, and I asked you how the tournament was going, and you started uh, um, breaking it down, and it was pretty compelling. So I was like, hold on, stop. We, the listeners are going <laughs> to want to hear this. So why don't you uh, reset that and tell us how things are going here around the halfway point of the European Championship? Yeah, uh, well, things are going tough, and I can say as expected. Uh, as I was telling you before we started, uh, it's... For me, personally, it's the toughest tournament I have ever played, and believe me, this is the fourth one I'm playing. And uh, what makes it tough is that apart from like having a lot of grandmasters, I think there are more than 150 in this tournament, uh, if, I, if I'm right. Uh, what makes it tough is that uh, the level of resistance people show at this tournament is so much higher than any, let's say, random open tournament. So uh, playing, a, let's say, formerly a weaker opponent is much tougher here than elsewhere. Uh, I cannot say what the reason is. Maybe it's the motivation of playing the Continental Championship. Maybe people are extra motivated uh, because they're playing strong people. Maybe the atmosphere, who knows. But um, uh, reality is that it's so much tougher. And uh, for me personally, as I said, this is my fourth one. And the previous three ones that I have played, I think... I have lost in all of them around, I would say something around 80 rating mm. points. 
So, I mean, had I, had I not played them, I would have been much better off. <laughs> huh. Well, at least rating-wise, but maybe, maybe you're uh, gaining some experience or making some connections. And, and as we were saying, uh, this, this takes place in your hometown. Um, uh, uh, tell me again how to say it. Skopje, <laughs> Skopje Macedonia. Um, yeah. So I think it might have been a tough one for you to skip in this case. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, it's, it's okay. Uh, I, I always see it as a challenge playing uh, strong people, tough tournaments and everything. I, I always try to to uh, respond to those challenges. And uh, yes, it was difficult to, to skip and I didn't want to skip, even though I was also involved in the organization of the tournament. And that also took away some time and energy and uh, okay, maybe also something of the preparation process. But anyway, for me, it wasn't an option skipping. I mean, even to, to, like, to make special arrangements for the tournament, I'm also not staying at home where I, have, where, I, where I have my family. I'm also renting a new apartment, I mean, an apartment, so where I can have my, my peace and, and, and concentration. And, uh, so, okay, I, I tried to do whatever I could to prepare as best as I could. And then, okay, let's see what happens. Yeah, you've still got a, a long way to go. And I, I mean, I saw your, your score. Of course, you're playing nothing but Grandmasters. So, um, you know, from, from my and I think most of the listeners' perspective, you're, you're doing fine. Although I'm sure there are a couple moves you can, you know, a, a, any chess player in any chess tournament is always going to be, um, you know, exactly. fi- fixated on what went wrong. Exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, okay, currently I'm on 50%. So, uh, okay, st- Two and a half out of five, and still six more rounds to go. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, I lost two in a row against strong grandmasters. Uh, probably should not have lost, but okay, that's with any any game of chess. He should not have lost it if he did not make a mistake. So uh, yeah, I made some mistakes in time trouble. They capitalized on them, so they won. So nothing to. I mean, it was fair. <laughs> is uh, is time trouble a, a frequent issue for you? Normally, no. But uh, again. We, we, we come back to this this uh, issue of uh, resistance and being tough, especially when you play strong opponents. Uh, they pose difficult problems, and uh, you need time to solve them. And normally, I play rel- relatively fast. I almost never in time trouble. But when I play strong opponents um, uh, and, and tough games, then it's more or less inevitable. I remember, for example, one story uh, back in the days uh, when Kasparov and Karpov were playing their matches, and... Uh, uh, both of them were known for, for their relatively fast play. But when they played each other, uh, most often they were both in time trouble huh. because the problems they set each other were difficult and they needed that time to solve those problems. And consequently, that led to time trouble. So this is, okay, in a way understandable, even though not very desirable, but what to do? <laughs> you have to think, you have to solve these problems. Yeah, so much of the game is psychological and based on confidence. And even though someone like Kasparov or Karpov, they're going to be confident no matter who they're playing. They also, they, they know when they have to, to be more careful. Exactly, exactly. Yes, they do, do, they do have the confidence, but they still need the time to calculate and, and, and figure things out. Yeah, um, and how uh, you mentioned that you help you you've been um, one of the organizers or at least helping to organize this tournament. Uh, so maybe you have a biased perspective, but but how have uh, the conditions been? What have you heard about the feedback from the players? Mostly people are happy. Uh, I mean, uh, the the from at least from what I've heard, um, the 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 tournament is taking place in the Hilton Hotel, and that's a new one uh, opened just recently back in December. So the conditions, the playing hall and the, the hotel itself is really great. But of course, not everybody's staying there. So people are staying every, there. There's no obligation to stay at the official hotels. So people are staying elsewhere, renting apartments, staying with friends, staying at other hotels. And um, uh, as, as I was the person responsible for the contact with players, uh, mostly people have been positive about it. So I have not heard any complaints, for example, if. Uh, so I just hope it continues like this and people stay and leave Skopje happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that it's going well so far. And certainly, I mean, it's it, the second half should be entertaining as we record. It's um, Saturday and Maxim Rothstein, uh, Berkis, Al- Alexenko and Purin are tied for first with four and a half. But you've got Gelfand, Grandelius, just oh, yeah. so many strong players in the tournament. Um, yes. the, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Um, and you mentioned on your blog uh, before the tournament that this may be your last European Championship? Yes. Uh, well, this is what I feel. Uh, the reason is that, um, okay, 
I, I, of course, I started as a professional chess player, but now I'm playing less and less because other obligations take over. And uh, that means that I don't have that much time for playing. So um, uh, playing another European would mean uh, traveling elsewhere for two weeks, uh, investing uh, energy, time, finances uh, to play a tournament, which by all means I would like to play. But then again, uh, it is not very like, I mean, let's be objective, it's not very likely for me to qualify for the World Cup or, or anything close to that, or maybe even getting a prize money. So I, I, that's why I think it's the last one, because, okay, it's my home, hometown, and uh, I, I like playing these type of tournaments, but I don't think I will be able to invest these source, sort of resources in the future to go and play something because I like to do it. Yeah, so maybe, this is this is my feeling. Yeah, maybe in your golden years, but yeah. It can, oh yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? it can be <laughs> tough. Uh, it can be tough right now, and I certainly understand. Like even when you mentioned that you that you're uh, staying away from your family, that you have. Uh, you know, that you rented a place, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, that's nice, but that that's a serious commitment. I mean, that that means you're you're digging into your pocket for again, something exactly. that you, you hope to do well in the tournament. But in terms of uh, uh, the finances of it, it's, you're not likely to see a great return on uh, on setting that money aside. No, not at all. Not at all. I don't expect any any return on money or anything. This is just what I do for like for pleasure. Okay, I mean, I, I really hope, I really think that everybody who who took up chess early on and they're still playing, they do it for pleasure most and foremost. Yeah, you earn money from it when you win a prize and so on. But nowadays, I don't depend on, on prize money for income. So, like I said, I'm more like a, as a as a as an amateur in this respect. So I just do what I want to do. I do what I love to do, and I invest some of my my uh, resources into it. So, I mean, uh, just for the love of the thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can all, we can all relate to that. That's for sure. Um, but but speaking of things that you do do for income, uh, so you've got a new book for Chessable, the the Nidorf Sicilian Simplified, and and I want to talk about that book because, like so many chess players, I find I find the Nidorf fascinating. But yes. let's start with your relationship with Chessable because this is not your first book with them. Um, so how how did it come about? Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, it, it came about via my blog, which is kind of uh, interesting. Yeah, it goes back uh, quite some years. Uh, you know, I, I've always had this. I was liked writing. Okay, I mean, I also have. Okay, I studied English language and literature. I have a BA in that. And uh, I always liked reading, writing, and so on. And I always gave like a word to myself that whenever I, when I become a grandmaster, I would open a blog. Okay, and that finally happened. Okay, I came, became a grandmaster. We're going to get to that story because that story is amazing. You but... know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not delving into the details. I'm just telling you the, the, <laughs> yeah. the story of, of the blog and chessable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in 13, I became a grandmaster, and then early 2014, I opened the blog and I started writing, and. Uh, it's funny because I again I didn't do it for any income because I'm not getting any income basically from my blog. I just do it because I want to do it, and uh, I I always wanted to write in a way that I would like to read about chess. So basically, I was writing in a way I wanted to read about. So and I started doing it, and then after a while, I can't remember the year exactly. I got a contact from certain David Cromali, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, oh, hey, look, I, I've read your blog. I really like how you write and so on. And uh, would you like to cooperate with us? We have we are a co- company called Chessable and this and that. And then I said, yeah, sure, why not? And then we got in, in, in contact. We, we got in touch. And he explained what, what, his, what his idea of Chessable is, how it works, science-based learning, and etc. And they started as, as basically as opening uh, learning uh, platform. Now there are so much more, of course. Uh, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to write a book for them. And I said, okay, why not? I mean, I've always been good at openings. I've always liked studying openings and, and all these things. So that's sure, why not? And then I remember I did a very, very basic repertoire on the Scandinavian. It was like... Uh, very, very basic, like uh, I think there are maybe like 20, 30 lines or, or less, or right? something like really, really basic, just showing the basic ideas and and, uh, and letting people be able to play it. Uh, so th- I think that was my first one. And then I, the, the second, the big project was obviously the Queen's Gambit declined. So a complete repertoire on uh, for black against everything except E4. Mm-hmm. And that was a really big project. I worked on that quite for a long time. And then as Chessable developed, 
Okay, they also introduced the video uh, sync options, and, and so I also recorded a video for that for that repertoire, and also developed. And it's an ongoing process because, of course, you know, Chessable, all the repertoires are alive. So, I mean, the author, okay, uh, if they want to, obviously, and I, and I do want to, always keep uh, uh, the repertoires updated, responds to comments by the users, uh, corrects mistakes, and so on and so on. So it's an ongoing process. So, and this has been going on for quite a few years. And uh, But oh, it was always bugging me, okay, okay, I have a repertoire against everything except E4, but what about E4? And now we're coming to the Nidorf, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so E4, I mean, Nidorf, I've always played the Nidorf, okay, since I was a kid. So it's kind of like a, a natural for me to play the Nidorf. But I understand a lot of people when you say, okay, Nidorf, theory and so on. So it's kind of like a fetish, you know? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to do it, but nobody, not many people dare to do it, okay? So I thought, okay, um, I know the Nidorf, and I know, yes, it's theoretical, but um, here uh, also comes the moment of timing, okay? Uh, and this is kind of, I think, maybe interesting for, for the listeners. Uh, there are times in opening theory of all openings as they evolve, that there is a good time to start playing that opening. Now, what do I mean by that? For example, the Nidorf. Now is actually a very good time to start playing the Nidorf. Why is that? Because as theory evolves, in a lot of lines, things have crystallized. It's kind of clear what black should play. So, basically, by choosing these lines, which have crystallized through a lot of practice and and research, etc., you can have a really compact and not too memory-demanding repertoire, and confidently play the Nidorf. So, uh, uh, okay, of course, to, to, in, in order to be able to create this type of repertoire, you have to really know the Nidorf, follow it uh, like on an everyday basis, analyze it a lot, understanding a lot. But all these things which, okay, I have done, helped me uh, realize that um, uh, to play successfully the Nidorf, you don't, Yes, you do need some memorization, but not that much as people might think. It's more about understanding of certain positions and reaction, typical reactions to what white can throw at you. So it's a, it's a, I would even say more understanding than, than memorization. So what I have tried to do in my repertoire was to, to kind of um, uh, get these crystallized lines Put them into moves and words, more words than moves. Yeah, mm, as so it should so, be. Yeah, as it should be. Yeah, and this is this was actually the hard work to to actually not to uh, get too much into the into the moves, not too much into the lines, but to be able to to explain in words what you're trying to show with the moves. So in that and in that in that way, the moves would be less. So this is what I was trying to do. Cool. And for example, just a final final. Uh, thought to just to, to explain what I was saying when I was saying the, about opening trends. For example, if you, if you take uh, as an opposite example the Gioco Piano, the Italian game that is extremely popular nowadays. Now it's not a good moment to play it, according to me, with black I'm talking about. Why? Because there are so many move orders, there are so many nuances, there are so many possible plans. It's not really clear what is best. Maybe all of them are good, but still, how do you choose? Yeah. So, so this is what I'm trying to explain. Like there are there are certain moments in theory when when something's crystallized, and that is the, the good moment to take up an opening. Interesting. Well, I have so many follow-ups from this. Um, uh, number one, just uh, for listeners who are curious, based on on your explanation of the course, is there like a target rating if the, someone is interested in going to chessable.com and possibly buying the course? Uh, like for for whom would it be a good choice? I'm I'm not sure if I can put it into rating category. I would more rather put it into a preference category. So uh, I think anybody who I mean, is capable of grasping the the repertoire, I'm I would rather suggest that if the player likes those types of positions, okay. Of course, it's a Nidorf, it's a Sicilian, it's sharper, but it's all, there is also strategy understanding. It's kind of complex. So if the player prefers that type of uh, let's say struggle battle then sure, by all means. I, I wouldn't I like to categorize people like, I don't know, well, you have 1,200 rating, you shouldn't be touching this. No, I don't, I don't believe in that. I, I think everybody's capable of, of, of grasping the, 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 that type of material. 
Yeah. So I just think it's about a personal preference if you like the type of play, if you like the type of lines or not. Okay. Yeah, and and getting back to what you were saying about it being a good time to learn it, it does seem to me like of course the Night Orf is kind of one of those evergreen openings. I mean, it goes back to to you know, Fisher from the White Side yes. and Kasparov playing it as black and you know, um, of course, Nidorf himself inventing it. I mean, not whatever, you know, being one of the yeah. first to play it back in the day. Um, and yeah. but these days, I mean, MVL famously, at least uh, memorably to me, said that he'll he'll play the Nidorf until his doctor tells him to stop. Um, yes, yes. But, but beyond that, I mean, Hikaru trots it out sometime, but it's not as like, you know, it's not as ubiquitous as it has been at other times at the top level. Nidorf has been omnipresent, yeah, obviously. But there were times when it was not clear what's going on. Yeah, I mean, people were trying different things. Uh, okay, one one player chose one line, another player another line. But now, as I said, this, this timing of things, for example, let, let me give you an example with MVL. For example, he single-handedly uh, resurrected, you could say, the Poison Pawn variation with H6. So I'm talking about bishop g5, e6, f4, h6, bishop h4, queen b6. Both Fischer and Kasparov played queen b6 directly. But then, it, okay, queen b6 directly is still fine. But the theory has so is like so mind-bogglingly complex. Lines go move 30, move 40, and beyond. Wow. So it's not very practical. Yeah. But what the MVL did is, in a way, some sort of a shortcut, inserting h6 when all these lines with sacrifices after queen b6, queen d2, queen d3, when black takes on b2, they work so much better for black with, because of that h6 move included. So he kind of shortcutted on, on so much theory and basically uh, limits white, if, they want, if white wants to fight for an advantage, to play the move a3 and not sacrifice on b2. And this, this is already a double success. First, no need to memorize so much that theory after queen b2, yeah? And two, um, uh, also, uh, less things to study because after a3 plays less, uh, let's say, congested with, with variations. There are not so many options for white, so it's not that demanding on memory. So this is like, as I say, timing. Yeah. Yeah. And for example, my my reason for for choosing this line with a6 h6 the MVL line as opposed to the other very very popular line of bishop g5 uh, knight bd7, which is also hugely popular, is because after knight bd7, white has a lot of uh, plans. Yeah, bishop c4, uh, queen e2, queen f3, various setups. And and, and I didn't want to, to to make it too difficult for my students to to study all those setups. Whereas in the MVL line, it's kind of a one or two, not more. Probably just one, but okay. So yeah. that's why it's making it practical. You have to be practical. You have to be smart because there's so much, it's too much information. I mean, this is like a modern problem, not just in chess. And you have to kind of always find ways to cut down on it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because, I mean, I, I think I, I have the perspective and I, I suspect I'm not the only one that the Nidorf is unequivocally a fun opening. I, I, I've never played it for black, but I enjoy it for, for both sides. Um, it's always like something I sort of admired from afar, but yeah, it's just so daunting if you're not a professional chess player. So yeah, the goal of simplifying it, I would say, is is, is an admirable one. Um, you you mentioned um, you mentioned uh, it being based more on chess style and whether it suits your preferences. Um, like who should uh, who would who might be interested in learning more about the Nidorf? And by the way, for listeners who who weren't able to follow all the variation, you could just look up the Poison Pawn variation, and there's just a rich history, and you'll start to get a sense of it. And then from there, you can decide if you want to uh, dive in deeper with um, GM Trolovich's course. Uh, but I, it struck me that uh, the other main course that you've mentioned doing for Chessable that you've done is uh, the Queen's Gambit declined, and stylistically, they don't seem very similar to me. Other than that, I would also call the Queen's Gambit declined an evergreen opening yes yes you're right you're right yes well the the, the thing with the but it, it's kind of uh, funny yeah uh, again i was based on on simplicity i, I chose my 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 um, my um, opening based on simplicity uh against d4 it's kind of more difficult i mean uh, in opening theory it's difficult to be to be let's say keeping keeping it simple if you want to play a mainstream opening and the queen's gambit declined uh, uh, was kind of a solid choice, yeah? solid choice, and again, not depending too much on memorization. 
And I mean, if you look at it, Kasparov was, was, was having these two opening on, on his repertoire. For example, when he was playing Karpov, okay, against D4, he was playing Queen's Gambit decline. Against D4, he was going Nido. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of, you can't sharpen up the game against D4 as you can against D4. Even if you go Kings, Indian, Grunfeld, Benoni, White can kind of uh, dull it down if they want to. Yeah, and, uh, for example, if you, again, if you look at those Kasparov Karpov matches, Kasparov was struggling in the Kings Indian, he was struggling in the Grunfeld because Karpov found ways to, 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 to tame him, yeah, which he could not in the Nidorf. You see, in the Nidorf, if you, that famous 24th game of the 1985 uh, uh, match when Kasparov became a world champion, that was the last game in the Nidorf for Karpov. After that game, he completely abandoned E4. Huh. Because he couldn't handle the Nidorf. So going back to your question, who should be kind of interested in, in the Nidorf? Mostly dynamic players. So players who who, who thrive on di- dynamism, counter chances, counter play, uh, aggressive th- aggressive treatment with with uh, with black. Always trying to, to to take over the initiative. These types of players, and also players who who enjoy calculating variations. Because after all, the Nidorf requires calculation. Yeah, yeah of course. And and the Queen's Gambit decline, would you, um, what, uh, I mean, of course I have my own opinion, but you're, you're a bigger authority. So would you say, what sort of player would you say should, might be interested in that? I devise the Queen's Gambit uh, decline as, as a more solid choice, as a more uh, positional one, much more than the Knight of, obviously. And and that would be for, for the more, let's say, calmer player, yeah, who, who do, does not want to get into wild complications. So that one would be for the more, more uh, let's say, positional oriented, if you can call it like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I basically devised it for, to be a, in a way a problem free opening because you know we know then the queen's gambit. The main problem is the bishop on c8. Yeah, mm-hmm. it gets gets just closed down. So I always was looking for lines where that problem is solved. Yeah. So in all my lines, that bishop never ends up closed down or a bad bishop. So this was this was the purpose of my opening so that. Whenever the, the black player uh, leaves the opening, they leave with a solid position, without weaknesses, and free piece play. So no bad pieces. This was my guiding idea. Okay. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm a fan of that opening as well. I mean, for, for the same reasons you say, because uh, in addition to, to being good choices in terms of uh, being able to play, there's so much chess history in, in oh, these yes. two openings, as you mentioned, just alluding to the Karpov-Kasparov match. Um, and, you know, it goes far beyond that. So, yeah, I'm definitely worth checking out for uh, for those of you looking to build out your opening repertoires um, over on Chessable. Uh, so what other chess improvement? I mean, you I know that, that you do some coaching. Um, you've, you've coached yeah. teams. You do individual lessons. So uh, when, when people, um, you know, stop you on the street and bug you for chess improvement advice, what, <laughs> what do you tell them, Alex? Well, uh, uh, I first ask them how much time they have to invest. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, okay, if, if a person is serious about um, about chess improvement, there is so much material available nowadays that it's kind of, again, it's the problem of too much information. It's not that it's, it's lacking, but it's too much. So people are kind of, in a way, get lost what to start with. Okay, this is good, that is good. Uh, somebody else, watch a video, read a book solve exercises, what to do. Yeah. So, but also I think the, the starting point is, is different for, for let's say, a, a young talent who is striving to become a grandmaster, world uh, elite player and so on, or a player who just wants to become better but does not but has a full-time job and uh, just wants to dedicate a few hours to his hobby. Uh, so th- there are diff- two types of, of uh, let's say, advice. Okay, well, let's steer the answer towards the latter because I think that's uh, more of our audience here. Is, yeah. Uh, so, yes, for, for, for the latter, again, uh, uh, I would say what their, I would ask a follow-up question, obviously, what their immediate aim is. Now, do you want instant results or you want to understand chess better, you want more long-term progress? So, for example, if you want instant results, then first and foremost, and you can basically forget everybody, everything else, is to improve your calculation. Okay? You can do puzzle books on Chessable. You can do, you can solve studies from a physical book. You can do, I don't know, puzzlerussianchess.com, whatever. Yeah? Just improve your calculation. For example, I can also relate to this because uh, the way I became a grandmaster was basically doing that. 
So yeah. I was uh, the studies, uh, right? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It, it was it was that Kasparian book, the domination studies, and uh, just religiously and literally religiously doing it every single day for at least one hour. No matter how I was uh, hungover, I was traveling, I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten, uh, whatever I had done that day, I had to do one hour of that. Okay, yeah, and I should and, mention, uh, I, I think I, I can't even remember if I, if I mentioned this in the, in the introduction, but I just want to interject. Um, in addition to your blog, you wrote this viral Quora post about how you became a grandmaster, which I, I'll link to in the show description, and I'm probably going to quote a couple times, but it's gotten like 67,000 views, and it really... Wow. Um, it, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, and it... Uh, it it really gets to the core of just what a challenge it can be. You, you, you had the feed a points you had, a, you had achieved a, or sorry, you had the norms you had, exactly. you had achieved the norms you needed, but you needed about eight more rating points. And, uh, yeah. that's where the story begins as they say. Exactly. 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 <laughs> so, no, this, uh, this, uh, okay. Sorry, sorry. No, you go ahead. I know. No, this is the kind of, I was also kind of shocked when I, okay. Now you tell me the numbers. I'm again, shocked. <laughs> But a lot of people have read this, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't expect it to to evolve like that. I basically wrote it for myself. Again. Yeah. Well, it hit me in the heart when I read it. I mean, I'll never be a grandmaster, but the pain and the struggle and how you right. weave in what's going on uh, in your life with like personal relationships. I mean, it's uh, it, it's all there in just like a page and a half or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no I, I just wanted to, to 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 do it for myself to kind of uh, relive. Uh, like uh, to, to the whole the whole struggle, yeah, how it was, and uh, I mean I don't know it, it just but again maybe maybe when I look at it back uh, from from today's perspective, I think that the misfortune was mostly uh, because of my own mistakes I could say yeah because I mean if I could sum it up now. Why I didn't do it before? Why I didn't do it earlier? Why I didn't do it in, a, in, in an easier way, and so on? I would say because I was not addressing the core problem. So you see, I mean, I have always been, let's say, a well-educated player. Yeah, I mean, I started playing chess as early, very early. When I was a kid. I've read all the classics. I know, like, uh, I mean, I've read everything there is to read. Okay, so I'm a kind of a well-educated player. Yeah. So I, 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 I never had trouble understanding a position, knowing what should be done and so on. I have discussed chess with elite players and I never felt inferior. But what was lacking was precision. When I was playing my games, I would be playing well, but at some point I would, I would lack precision, I would miscalculate, I would make a mistake, and I would lose a game. So I wasn't really addressing. I mean, I, I always preferred to work on some classical games uh, and analyze an opening and so on and so on. I would say maybe because it was easier, but I wasn't addressing the core problem, which is my imprecise calculations. And as, as the core post uh, yeah, describes, yeah, in 2012, I just got fed up with it I, after yet another failed European Championship, <laughs> like this one. Yeah, <laughs> I just decided, okay, enough is enough. Yeah, and then I just I must do this. Yeah, and then I did it, and I then. 2012, I started doing those one-hour exercises by, by studies by Kasparian. I started doing them, I would say, sometime in after, which means spring 2012. And in a year and a bit, I became a grandmaster. So, I mean, then I could say, why didn't I do it earlier? Well, I don't know why I didn't do it earlier. Maybe because I wasn't uh, sincere with myself. I just wasn't looking at myself in the mirror and saying, come on, what's your problem? Come on, do what you, needs you to be done. Yeah, you hadn't suffered enough yet. Probably, probably. But I mean, I've discovered I have uh, like almost infinite capacity for suffering, which is, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. But... It's a re- I think it's a requirement to become a grandmaster. So. I mean, not for everybody. Not, I mean, people, I mean, kids become grandmasters at, at 12 true, or yeah. 13. So I don't think they suffer that much. I mean, <laughs> uh, so it's, I at least, uh, it's at least a, um, it, it doesn't hurt your cause. Let's put it that way. No, maybe not. But then again, if I if I didn't have this capacity for suffering, I would have said, I don't want to suffer anymore. Let's do what needs to be done. Right. That's, yeah, it's a way of, yeah, it's a, how you frame it. And and for, for listeners, um, astute listeners will have noted that Kasparian's Domination Studies is also the very book cited by Andres Krizdwa before he made a big jump in his rating. So one, one follow-up question is, uh, because I, for for what rating, I've had a few listeners email me and ask me, um, 
A, like for what rating do you think uh, the domination studies by Kasparian are a good choice? Like is it what minimum rating do you think um, can handle attempting them? Well, again, I wouldn't categorize people into rating categories. I think, for example, even a, let's say a beginner, okay? I mean, beginner, not really beginner, beginner, but okay, a player who just knows how to move the pieces and can look at the position and, and so on, even they can benefit. Because the studies can be used for, for more than one type of training. For example, what I was doing was, after a while, I started doing solving them blindfold. So wow. I would look at the diagram, I would close my eyes and try to solve it in my head. But, for example, uh, uh, let's say a beginner or like an intermediate player, they can set up at the, the board and calmly just look at it, move the pieces a little bit, okay, analyze a bit. I mean, everybody can... can, uh, can um, uh, take advantage of those studies because what they are teaching you is the this theme of domination. So what is domination? Domination is one piece uh, limiting the movement of another. And this is uh, like maybe the, the core, the, the essence of chess, maybe, maybe, I'm, I'm not sure, maybe the core of chess is domination. So how do you win games? By limiting your opponent. So you, for example, if you take a look at the, the styles of, of like, I don't know, Carlsen today, Karpov, Capablanca, even dynamic players like Fischer and Kasparov, they're kind of all kind of dominating their opponents on the board. Yeah, they're limiting the movements of the opponent's pieces. They do it in different manners, that's yeah. hence, hence the difference in their styles. But it's always domination. Alpha so, zero, too. Alpha zero, too, yes. But it, it, just, the styles differ, but the core does not. Yeah. So if you, if you look at it, even, uh, let's say, like I said, an intermediate player, they set up the position and they slowly analyze the options. Aha, I play this move out, the bishop cannot move or the knight cannot move because I take away these squares and so on and so on. Even they, they can profit from it. So because it teaches such an important concept in chess. Yeah. At well, least this is my opinion. Well, just to push back a little bit, though, because we've I'm of the opinion and we've had a lot of um, uh, um, respected, you know, titled guests come on and say that, that, yes, anyone can look at a study like Kasparian's studies, but if you're not doing the work, if you're not actually attempting to solve it, you're, it's kind of like when you have a chess video on in the background and your kids are in the room and you're looking at your phone, it's like, okay, yes, you're, yes, you're learning chess, but are you really pushing the boundaries? Are you really, um, is it really going to help you calculate better over the board if you're you know, not at the level where you can approach uh, getting, coming up with an answer? No, no, you're absolutely right. Of course, I mean that's why I said it depends on the level of the player how they they take they approach this study. So the point is to uh, uh, let's say, uh, of course, an intermediate player setting up the board and moving the pieces is fine, but not with the kids around. I mean they must be concentrated and, and actually applying their brains. So in any chess study, whatever chess study you do, if you're applying your brain, if you if you realize if you're aware that you're actually working and applying yourself trying to understand things, then you're progressing. Even, okay. if you're, even if you're failing, for example, let's say you're trying to, to solve a study by Kasparian, yeah? And you suffer for, I don't know, depending on your level of, uh, I mean, capacity for suffering, obviously. <laughs> you you try, try for 15 minutes, one hour, whatever, yeah? And you fail. But if during that time you're actually calculating, okay, I want to play king e3, Aha, so what what can he do here? Aha, maybe king d5, maybe king f5. Okay, let's start first with king d5. Aha, so if king d5, I can play. So if you're actually making moves in your head, yeah, if you're actually applying your brain, even if you fail the fail to solve the study, you're progressing because next day you'll be better. This is the 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 uh, sort of secret, but I mean this is the 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 key to chess work. You have to apply yourself. When you're watching a chess video, you 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 don't. Most likely, most often, you don't apply. It's like, like watching a movie, yeah? yeah? You're not applying yourself. You're just enjoying it. Yeah, but enjoying it is fine. But applying it is what makes you better. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's helpful advice. Um, do you have any – and I know you've written a couple blog posts about book recommendations, so I'll, yeah. I'll link to those as well. But if there, if there are listeners who are trying to heed the advice, the advice excuse me, that uh, – you know, that they really need to work on their calculation, but they're at a level where realistically they're not going to solve Kasparian studies. Um, is it okay to just do tactics books or is there like a lower lower level study book they should work on? Do you have any any uh, recommendations? Well, of course, you're right. Yes, uh, there are too many of them, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what to recommend, but because, okay, I kind of 
find it difficult to relate to, to yeah, those of type of yeah, problems. But, for example, I've heard that um, uh, the uh, I think they're also on Chessable, the, the, the Mate in One problems, and also mm-hmm. the, the Polgar book. Yeah, uh, to, I don't know how many thousand of problems. The, yeah, yeah, chess. Yeah, and the yeah. main one's book I think is by uh, John Edwards. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so last, I think Laszlo Polgar used those uh, those, those uh, problems, those exercises, to test his daughters. Yeah. So, I think those are a good place to start for 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 let's say uh, in, let's say uh, players of of lower levels. Yeah, because they they get you kind of used to seeing things on the chessboard. Yeah, they are not that difficult. It's a mating one or mating two. Yeah, they're not that difficult. They're full of typical patterns, which are which will be immensely helpful in the future. And they are also, like I said, easy to solve, and this gives you momentum, right. and also it makes you feel good. So it's kind of it's good. So I would say the, these books are, are what what I would let's say recommend. Okay, but your broader point is that it's not it's not um, studies per se that that one needs to study. That's what you needed no, no, to do at your at your particular level. But at a lower level, you can work on your calculation just more generally. Of course, of course, well, yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. cool. And what about? I mean, again, I know you've written about this, but just uh, to give our listeners a taste, what what mm. were the most uh, formative chess books for you? What are you? What what impacted you the most? Wow, this is kind of again broad subject, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because okay, as I was growing up and, and uh, from the beginning, I was reading all the classics, you know, Capablanca's books, Lasker, I don't know, Tarash. Uh, the Razuvaya book on Rubinstein, the Botvinnik tomes, Smyslov's games, Petrosian, Tal, I mean, pretty much Fisher, 60 memorable, everything, yeah, everything. Uh, so this was, like you could say, my chess education, yeah. But then, uh, for example, and when you read so much, okay, then uh, everything, the next thing you read, there is less and less new things that you learn. So, for example, uh, and in a way, I was kind of getting blasé, you know, oh, this again, oh, I, I know this, oh, okay, this is okay, this is already known. But then again, lately, okay, maybe not so lately, but uh, there have been some books which are kind of groundbreaking, at least for me. And the first ones I encountered were Rosen's books. I think they were mentioned, there are, I mean, many people have mentioned those. Okay, the, the three books, okay, the Grunfeld first, which inspired me to, to, to try the Grunfeld myself. Uh, then the the sins and the the zebras. Okay, yeah. so that's yeah, that's uh, Jonathan Rousen. Yeah, very yes. very popular. And I'm a big fan of his books as well. Oh, fantastic books. Yeah, big, yeah, and you know why? You know why? Because his books make you think. Okay, his books uh, at least made me think. You know, think about things, not just okay, uh, learn a fact or two or something. No, they 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 provoke you to think for yourself. You know, to to kind of uh, get things through your own filter to understand things yourself. And again, this is what makes you a better player. You have to get everything through your own filter. Okay, if somebody tells you this is good, this is bad, yeah, you can take it at face value, but it won't have the, the same effect as if, if, as, if you, uh, uh, as if you had gone through your own filter. You have to understand things yourself. And th- that's why these Rawlson's books were, were so, I mean, illuminating for me. Because, you know, you read, and you, you don't read it like a, like a, I don't know, like a book like in two days. No, you read a paragraph, then you mm-hmm. stop and think. Yeah. You know, and this is, this is what, what a great book for, for me is. You know, that, that motivates me to think. Yeah. And, and okay, so, for example, like I said, okay, all the classics here, Rosen, yeah. But there was one book, and I think I mentioned it in my, in my, in my blog post. I, unfortunately, I don't think it exists in English. Uh, because I read it in Russian, and it's called Baloven Kaisi, which roughly translates uh, something like uh, Kaisa's favorite, and it's by uh, world champion Ewe and Ludovic, Ludovic Prince, uh, okay, uh, Dutch players, obviously, and it's about Capablanca. But it's not like any book on Capablanca. It's, it's kind of a, again, it was a very thought-provoking book for me because it, it give, tries to give psychological perspective on Capablanca through his games, and also about his life as well. So for me, okay, again, Capablanca is one of my favorite players, so maybe that's why I was so fascinated by the book, because I've read pretty much everything about him, and I've studied his games so much, etc. So maybe this game helped me understand the player better, and also it improved my chess, because by reading his that book and analyzing his games, you understand so much more. 
It's, it's one thing just to analyze the moves, it's fine, you understand the moves and so on. But when you also see the psychology behind the moves, yeah, or you think about the psychology behind the moves, then, then you just improve immensely. And again, why Capablanca for me? Because in my opinion, and also not only in my opinion, he's the easiest of all the world champions yeah, to understand. Uh, yeah. Because so, his style was so kind of clear. Yeah. You, you could say easy. You see, you see a game by Capablanca and after you say, I can play like this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Said, oh, yeah, right. Okay, start doing it then. You right. Say. Yeah. <laughs> okay, do it then. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it kind of, it kind of uh, it, it makes your chest better because you understand what he's trying to do in the game. And then you try to do the same. For example, again, from from my from my um, uh, career, I studied. I think for some three months. Uh, I think it was it was the winter of two thousand four, two thousand five. I studied for three months just Capablanca's games, nothing else. And then at the first tournament I played after that, I won the tournament and made the GM rule. Hmm. Wow. So it was kind of wow. Really, the, maybe I could say the first conscious uh, jump in quality in my career was then. Okay, and before it was not very conscious, but but then I just studied and I, I could see how my play became so much better. And when you study a book like that, when you go through um, uh, uh, legendary players' games, what's your approach? Like, what's your pace? Do you try to guess the moves? How should people go about that? Yeah, this is this is a very good question because I have been asked this, and what I try to to um, uh, explain, uh, what I do is maybe I should. Uh, there is some video online, or maybe in more than one, uh, showing Bobby Fischer going over some games. Hmm. Okay? And uh, probably you can look it up, and it's probably it exists in more than one video. So he, he holds the book and goes over the games. So what he does, he looks at the, uh, the, I mean, the, the rotation, and he makes the move on the board, right? And he looks at the board. Okay, just looking at the board, trying to understand probably what's going on. Then takes back the move. Okay, so the move he plays, he takes it back, looks at the board again. Okay? Then tries another move. Okay, looks at the board again. Maybe makes a move for his opponent, analyzes a bit, okay? Then goes back to the initial position and makes the move from the game again. Then looks at it again, okay? And then continues. And this goes on for the whole game. Now, what's going on? Okay, this, I mean, looking from the side, just formally, this is how it looks like when I do it also. But what happens in my mind, now I think this is what is important to, to, to explain. When I look at the board, okay, I try to see, okay, what's going on in this position, okay? And then I have a few, ide- few ideas what I would like to play in this position. Okay, maybe this move, maybe that move. Okay, I still don't know why. Okay, and then I could try to guess the move. I could try to calculate the line, a line. Okay, not so important. I look at the move Capablanca plays and plays this move. And then I try to say, try to think, why did he play this move? And I, I think the key is the following. I try to feel why he played that move. Now, this is very important. I mean, a lot of people, yes, it's about calculation. It's about... Uh, about understanding and so on. But these two, calculation and understanding, they blend into something that every strong player has, and that's a, his own personal feeling about a position. So what, I was, what I'm trying to do whenever I analyze a, a strong player a game, I try to understand what his feel is, what his feel should have been or, or must have been for him to come to this move. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I'm, I'm trying to to explain the the the, the process. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, it does. It does make sense because okay. there's. Yeah. You want to be able to tap into like your your intuitive mind when you when you exactly play. and try to tap into his intuitive like Capablanca right. or whoever's. Yeah. And this is what I was doing when I was studying Capablanca. I would make a move and I said, hmm, I don't feel this. I wouldn't play this. Now let's try to understand why he played this. Okay. And then I analyze. Okay. I can analyze moving the the pieces on the board. I can analyze using an engine. It's fine. Yeah. Both are fine. So yeah. how long would you would you spend looking at one game? Ah, exactly. Well, it takes time, definitely. Sometimes I would spend an hour or more on one game. So it's not a it's not a fast process, but it's a very very rewarding process because uh, after you finish the end, you feel differently now. You know, you feel like you understand better the person, you understand better the game, you understand better how chess should be played, and so on. It's and very very deeply rewarding. Okay, and one more follow-up. Sorry for, for trying to get every last detail, but I know a lot of people, like, there's just so many nuances that make a difference in terms of how you approach studying. So when do you read the notes? If it's an annotated game, are you you play the move, read the notes, or you try to play the move, stop, and then then read the notes? No, notes are fine. Now, everything, okay. that, helps, everything that helps you try to get a feeling about the position is fine. For example, depends who the notes were written by. If it's the player himself, 
Then again, you have to think, ah, but is he being sincere or he wants to, okay, present things in a different way. Right. Okay. So again, that also gives you information that you have to think about. Yeah. And then again, it's, it all boils down to playing the moves, looking at the position, getting the move back, look at the starting position. What would you play? What does your feeling tell you? Try to tap it into his feeling, why he played this move, analyze a bit. Did he miss something? Did he did not did he not miss something? Did he blunder or not blunder? So all these things. Yeah, it's long. It's not I mean I, at least I found it very pleasant and pleasurable process to do this. Uh, the, I think the main problem nowadays is that everything happens so fast. And uh, mind you, I was doing this in 2004, 2005 when, okay, there was not so much, I mean, internet made, okay, yeah. there was, but I mean, <laughs> not much so pro- proliferation of, of chess available uh, material. So I was, I was able to kind of concentrate on, on that only. Yeah. And okay, it, it brought me just so much. And then I'm happy I did it. I mean, I, funny thing is I would still like to do that sometimes to nowadays, I just don't have the time. But right. so I understand. So I understand people if, when they don't do it. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And and one more follow up on the, this uh, sort of this Capablanca topic. Since since the book you mentioned uh, by World Champion Oive is not available in English, is there? Do are there any one or two sort of things that surprised you from that book, or like main takeaways that you could share with our listeners? Uh, I remember one 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 interesting uh, thing, and I'm, I'm really not sure if it's from that book, but uh, I think it was from the game against uh, Nimtsovich, a famous game he won by sacrifice. It was in 1914, I think, in Saint Petersburg, I think, when he sacrifices a pawn on the on the queen side, okay, and obtain some bank or like compensation along the open files, and then I think uh, at some point he gets the pawn back, okay. And uh, I think Ewe is quoting Capablanca, commenting on that game. He says, and it was, it says like, uh, uh, Capablanca said, I got my pawn back. <laughs> and he said, the comment by Ewe was, this, my pawn gives us much more insight into Capablanca's uh, psychology than anything else. You know, he, it, 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 and it's funny, it gives you like, you start thinking about it and say, what do you mean? And then you start thinking, and say, but he was, he, it was his pawn, all the, he, he was never feeling inferior that he was a pawn down. He was never feeling that he was lacking something. It always belonged to him, even though he played for like without a pawn for, for many moves. So when you start thinking and you start understanding these things, it's like, wow, you know, you understand so much from that. That's great. Thank you. That was, that's a great story. I'll, I'll try to track down that game too. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the details though, but I'm pretty sure about the, the comment and the, and the, and the interpretation of this, my pawn. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Alex, I want to be respectful of your time. You only get one rest day in this tournament. So I think I just have one more topic, which is you, yes, you were just, just elected uh, president of the Association of Chess Professionals. So how does, uh, you know, why, how? <laughs> how, how, why, how, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this was, uh, was uh, I must say, unexpected a bit for, for me as well, because, you know, uh, I was, before being a president, I was a general secretary for the last three years, I think. And in that period... Okay, ACP was basically fighting with FIDE. Okay, FIDE was Makropoulos, Yumzhinov, and uh, uh, we were at odds with their policies, with their treatments of players, and so on and so on. So we were basically fighting with them, trying to improve the, the, the quality of, of the chess players' lives, conditions, and so on. And then what happened is that uh, last year when uh, there were elections, for the first time in, in ACP's history, we decided to, to cease being neutral, and we, dis- we voted to, to support Dvorkovic. And um, uh, we did it openly, we supported him, and I like to believe that we helped him win. So we, when, when Dvorkovic won the, those elections, obviously changes uh, came upon and, and so on. Uh, but what, what ha- also happened was that uh, people from the ACP, like myself, like the now former President Sutovsky, uh, Yuri Garrett, who is the board director, and Pavel Tregubov, who was the treasurer, we all got involved in FIDE. So we became part of various commissions and so on. Emil became, uh, he's like a uh, second charge in FIDE now and so on. So now the question was, okay, we won the battle with FIDE. So now what with the ACP? And then, obviously, with, with people being involved in FIDE, uh, new people were, were necessary to come in. And we weren't sure what to do. And, uh, okay, Emil said immediately, he there was no way for him to continue because he's still busy with 
uh, with his new job at Fide. And and the rest of us, we were thinking, okay, we, we're the senior, okay, let's say, uh, po- uh, posts yeah, in the ACP. What to do now? So, okay, obviously, we, we, we had to have um, new elections, which we did. And then we were considering what to do. Do we step down? Do we let other people take over and so on and so on? We had a lot of discussions about this. And eventually, we we kind of decided to stay, but also to um, uh, rephrase, okay, the, the role of the ACP. So now it's not a struggle anymore. Now there is no more fight with FIDE. Now ACP, as we see it, has a, should have a new role. More like, a, as Yuri put it, think tank. In a way, we should be coming up with ideas and projects how to continue making the professionals' lives better. So this is, the, I would say, the main uh, goal of the new board. Uh, to come up with ideas, to come up with projects, to to, to continue making the, the, the lives of, of chess players better. Now, me becoming a president, that was kind of, like I said, surprising because when the new board was formed, uh, we had discussions who should be the new president and so on. And, okay, the board decided that uh, still a, a professional chess player should should be the president, the representative of the ACP. So, after all, it is a chess professional's organization, so a chess professional should, have, should be the president. So that's, I mean, how I got elected. And, but again, I don't see myself as, a, as like, a, I don't know, above the rest. I just see myself, okay, as a representative and also maybe as a more of a manager within the board, how to coordinate the work between various members to work on these projects. So this is how I see the future of ACP. Okay, this is just the beginning and let's see, let's see how it evolves. But um, so far we've had some quite a few interesting ideas so let's hope they materialize any ideas that you, that you feel like you can share right now or do you need to sort of uh, run them up the flagpole first and see what yeah we, 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 I mean they're, they're all they're all still like uh, pretty much uh, theoretical yeah okay so I mean I don't know I mean there were quite a few I just now can't remember uh, what we talked about, but I, I just don't want to say too much because I mean, if I say something and it doesn't material, it right, will, yeah, it will just look bad. So uh, let's just see if something good coming up, and then we can talk again. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, congratulations, by the way. Yeah. Thanks. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm guessing I know that when I had uh, when I spoke with uh, GM Jakob Bogard, he was saying uh, you know it's not a not a job that you do for the money. So no, I mean, there, look, there is no money in there. I mean, yeah. uh, we're all doing it pro bono. I mean, nobody's paid for it. So we're all uh, dedicating time away from our families, jobs, whatever we do, to, to try to, to help the chess world, and that's it. So, I mean, uh, nobody's paid. It's not a paid job. It's not a paid – nobody's paid in the ACP. So yeah. And I know you've been involved with the FIDE Fair Play Commission too. Yes. That's also, in, in a way, came uh, as a result of our support to, of, of FIDE. And both me and, and Yuri, we are at the, the Fair Play and again, it's very early stages. Uh, again, as you know, I mean, fair play. I mean, fair play. It's kind of a very broad subject, and we are not too happy with the name. Before it was anti, <laughs> before it was anti-cheating, which was more concrete and more right. More yeah, precise. and let's let's call a spade a spade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, a spade a spade. So it it is anti-cheating. So uh, uh, you know, I think it's uh, the single most. Uh, dangerous thing happening in chess, which is the, this computer-assisted cheating, and we are facing a, I mean, a monumental task here, trying to fight that. We had some, we have some some uh, uh, procedures and regulations and so on, but it's such a difficult thing with improvements in, in technology and everything. It's becoming so much easier to to do it, and we always need to be one step ahead of the of the, those people who might try. Again, yeah. very early stages. Uh, I'm relatively new in that commission, so I still, I mean, I have to learn how things work. But okay, again, the first signs are promising, and let's see how things develop from there. Yeah, what are they doing at the European Championship? Do they? Do you have to check your phones or? Um... Oh yes, yes. Actually, okay. As part of me being part of the organization, I also was tasked with the kind of uh, selecting uh, anti-cheating uh, arbiters. So what we did was, okay, I, I introduced them to the regulations, procedures, and so on. And uh, the, the, I mean, just to give you an idea what the, uh, how it looks like, before entering the, the, the play hall, there is a, a, a wardrobe where you can, okay, actually not a wardrobe, just a place where you can, you leave all your belongings. 
they're safeguarded there. There are people there all the time. So you leave your phone, you leave your keys, you leave metal stuff and everything, okay? Then, before entering the, the playing hall, you're scanned with the handheld scanners, okay? And then you enter the playing hall. In the playing hall, there are these anti-cheating arbiters who are walking around, observing things. Uh, there, there is one also um, in the refreshment area, the smoking room. Uh, they occasionally check the toilets as well. And also there are these small little gadgets, okay, uh, that um, uh, are able to determine uh, whether there is a presence of some metallic thing nearby. But these are not visible. So, I mean, this is the trickiest part. And, uh, you know, you never know who might be wearing one of those. And there, are, and there are people walking around the playing hall. So you don't know, I mean, if you're a cheater, yeah, you don't know if somebody approaches you and that thing goes off. Huh. You know, so it's kind of, it's kind of in, in, um, in, introduces this aspect of, of uh, unpredictability and, and surprise. So if somebody dares to cheat, okay, they don't know if somebody just walks around, if they have this uh, small gadget on them. So th- there, are, there are things we are trying to do. Hopefully, we will be successful and there will be no incidents, but you never know. That's amazing. We got to get some um, engine-sniffing dogs. They have, they have yeah, that would be drug dogs, bomb dogs. Now we need engine dogs to be, uh, p- be patrol- <laughs> patrolling that the would games. Be great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex. Well, um, this has been great. I mean, I love the chess history. I'm excited for the Nidorf book. Um, you know, listeners are tired of hearing me say, make excuses for why I don't play right now. But if I... <laughs> Certainly in a, um, in an alternate life, I would love to just be like, all right, it's on. I'm going to play the night or if I'm going to get your course, like uh, gloves are off, bring it. Because uh, that's chess in its purest form. And uh, and again, there's so much history in, in, in the openings you yes. cover. Yes. Um, yes. So before we let you go, if anyone wants to reach you, uh, I know you have a, a Twitter account. Your blog is awesome. So I'll link to those. Is yeah. there any other yes, um, preferred no, method? No, Twitter is fine. Okay, I also have Facebook, obviously. Okay. So basically, basically these three channels, you could say, okay, my blog, you have contacts there, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, it's fine. I mean, okay, and yeah, and Chessable yeah. as well, of course. Chessable, of course. Yeah, of course. Yes. Okay, well, this was a lot of fun, Alex. Uh, enjoy the rest of your, your rest yeah, day. Thanks, and, uh, and good luck in the rest of the tournament. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks, man. It was great great talking to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it myself, too. Excellent. All right, take it easy and uh, good luck. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Thanks to everyone who makes Perpetual Chess possible. Of course, that includes Matthew Passy, my producer, and Geert Vandervelt for supplying the intro music. I also want to thank everyone who helps spread the word about the show. That includes people who tell their friends, tweet about it, share on Facebook. Apparently, Instagram is a thing. Every little bit helps grow the show. But most of all, I want to thank people who support the show financially. I've said this before, but Perpetual Chess is my most gratifying but least paying work. If everyone who listens to the show were able to kick in $1 a month, it would be my best paying and most gratifying work. So I want to thank those who are able to provide financial support. That includes extra special thanks to Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Dan O'Hanlon, Greg Shahadi, John Jernigan, and Todd Bryant. And I also want to thank all of my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. Here comes the list. You guys ready? Here we go. Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Benjamin Handelman, BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, I am Carlos Perdoma of ChessAtlanta.com, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Chabri, Christopher Wood. Good job, Christophers. I am Christoph Zalicki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer. Good job, Daniels. Dave Saylor, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith. I am Elect Donnie Ariel Esquire, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Ogar of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastia, Jason Willem, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Namsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovrutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Martin Habich, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the mysterious Moon Master 9000, Mr. Michael Shahadi, Nate Salon, 
Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek of DiplomatChess.com, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, the Law Office of Stuart Katz, WGM Tatia Babrahamian, Thomas Casper, Thomas Stanek, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, his book is coming accessible. Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrinkouche, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyano. Thank you, everyone, and I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.